0: This morning's readings from, as uh, Andrew said, Titus 3, 1-8, um, to 8. that's at the bottom of page 1201 there. Titus chapter 3, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone.
1: Good morning everyone, it's good to be back, sort of, no, it is good to be back. I, um, if you are new here, i have been away for about nine weeks on long service leave and as it starts you think, oh this is never going to end, but you know it will and uh, you end up back here, but uh, it's great to be back here. I remember thinking as we went uh, on our travels and we were in various places, there's nothing like feeling like you belong. And it's great to go away and enjoy and relax and we've done that, we've learnt, we've relaxed, we've unwound. But there's no doubt, there's a wonderful feeling about actually feeling like you belong somewhere and you come home to them. Uh, And I say them because belonging is being part of a family and part of a community and we do do feel that in a very significant way. And so it's great to be back. So let me pray as I bring us some reflections uh, from my time away. Lord, we do thank you for your wonderful grace your love and for the truth that we know through your word about the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, may those three things, the love, the truth and the grace of our Lord Jesus, be with us this day as we reflect on history. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now today I've called um, Echoes from Europe. Uh, I've got a message next week called Living in Babylon. And what I want to do this week is look back. and. It might be slightly self-indulgent. I'm kind of still living the dream um, of being over in Europe. Uh, And I'm going to just share with you some of my reflections, uh, if I can say, as a Christian leader, on what I've learnt. Uh, And I think very important for us to think about today as a church as we go forward. Next week I'm going to be looking forward and some thoughts I've been having from my time away. But I've called this week Echoes from Europe. But before I get into it, I thought, look, I'll just show you a couple of slightly self-indulgent funny things. Look, I found them funny. You might think, you know, you've got a quirky sense of humour. But uh, the first was at Bath Abbey. Now, Bath is a wonderful town. Um, You've got Roman baths there. The Romans had quite a significant population. And they've got this beautiful abbey. Now, what struck me, though, we got in there late to the service, and I went for a wander around after the service, um, having just been through renovating the roof here at St. Matthew's. And, you know, I've led the charge, we had to raise, I think we raised nearly a quarter of a million dollars, which was incredible. Uh, but then I found this plaque because they had a similar issue a few hundred years ago in terms of having to raise money uh, for a leaky roof. And uh, just listen to what the, uh, the plaque said. Let me read it to you. Um, James Montague was the bishop and it says, um, The bishop was walking with Sir John Harrington, godson of Queen Elizabeth I. The bishop was overtaken by a sharp shower. In other words, there's a hole in the roof. Being invited into the roofless nave by his companion, he remarked on the want of shelter, whereupon St John replied, and I thought, what a great marketing uh, strategy. Well, if the church does not keep me safe from the waters above, how shall it save others from the fire below? (laughs) I thought, I didn't think of that one last year. Anyway, that that, that drew my attention. I found that quite funny. The other one was, um, you know, we worry about Putin and we worry about, you know, Donald Trump and world leaders and what's going to happen and all this sort of thing. Now, those guys have got nothing on the Roman era. And I read this... Plaque, and it's there on the Tower of London Bridge, and we'd been up there and we'd walked across the glass section where you can look down and see the river under your feet, and lo there's a little plaque, and I used to read everything that I could when I was out there, and I'd take a long time, and this plaque comes up, and I'll read it to you. Uh, it's about the conquest of London. In AD 43, the Emperor Claudius decided to put the relationship between Rome and Britain on a more formal basis. So what did he do? He ordered an invasion and the complete subjugation of the island. I thought, I love it how the leaders worked back then. Yes, we'll be on a more formal basis. We will just take over you (laughs) and conquer. And uh, that apparently is when London got its name. It was named Londonium following the invasion. Anyway, there's a few few, uh, funny things that caught my eye. But I've got a couple of things to reflect on. And in particular, I want to think about the church that I discovered over in Europe. And if you've been in Europe, you'll all know this. And I know we've got people here who are British, and let me just say I love being in Britain. We're there most of our time in London. Our daughter lives in London, uh, in Notting Hill. Uh, There's just churches everywhere. Um, You can't help but just walk around, and there's another church. And it's very striking. Um, There's incredible beauty, Uh, there's beautiful choirs, uh, beautiful buildings. That's St Paul's London. It's one of the architectural centerpieces of the city. Um, I understand, well, I was told this from reliable sources, in terms of planning laws in the city, um, skyscrapers can't be put up that will block people's view of St Paul's Cathedral and the dome. It's kind of uh, where people orientate themselves when they're in the city center. I went to Westminster Abbey. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about that in uh, the course of today. We went to Oxford, and that's up in one of the churches. And you look out on Oxford, and Oxford University really is a collection of colleges. It's not one university. There's just a series of different colleges, Balliol College, New College, Christchurch College, etc., etc. And they've all got their own church or chapel. And we went to one of them. We went to uh, the New College Chapel. Uh, There's just churches everywhere. That's St. Chapelle, That's in Paris, Uh, one of the most exquisite examples of stained-glass windows. Um, And that is incredibly beautiful. Um, Those stained glass windows uh, are 15 metres high. There's 15 of them. And there's actually 1,113 scenes from the Bible depicted in those windows. In fact, it goes right through uh, to kind of the medieval period. And it starts at Genesis and goes all the way through Revelation. Um, And so it's not just any art. They're actually trying to tell the story of the Bible through art. Um, And the art is incredible. You go to Notre Dame in Paris, which is the great cathedral there, and you walk in there, and I'll tell you what, it's the most incredible wood carving, and that is a panel which would stretch from here to the back wall, and they're all little scenes carved out of wood of the suffering, the temptation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and the disciples' engagement with it. And it's telling you the story... Of the cross, incredible. Uh, New College, we went there and we went to Evensong there on the Friday night, an incredible choir of uh, effectively professional choristers and you come out and it was the most striking sculpture that you see there and that sculpture is Lazarus, risen from the dead, who is just struggling to throw off the, gla- the grave cloths very powerful sculpture as you stand there and are confronted uh, in artistic form with someone's depiction of the resurrection of the dead in Lazarus. But here was the reality. Um, With all this incredible biblical history and beautiful monuments and choirs, so often the church was like, if I can just say with all respect, uh, a museum and at times appeared like a glorified graveyard. And you see bodies literally are buried all through these places. Uh, you go to Westminster Abbey and you can walk over the graves of Sir Isaac Newton, you can walk over um, Charles Darwin, Is buried there. Um, we went to the chapel at Windsor Castle, uh, walked over Henry VIII, and it's incredible the history that is there, which was fantastic to learn. But So many of the churches were dead or dying or empty. And what you were struck with was more of a museum than a worshipping community. And I don't say this lightly or wanting to be judgmental, though I might sound that way. Um, Churches have concerts. Churches have become restaurants. Uh, One key cathedral I saw as I went out the back had installed a pub. And I thought, that's very interesting. Um, And I have very uh, clear views on that. Um, Alcohol is a massive problem here in Australia. uh, And I've got nothing against the pub. If you want to go for a meal over there, great. Um, And the English pubs really are quite incredible. And the lunches you can get there were fantastic. Um, But what you saw was this emptying of the community of faith. Now, it wasn't all like this. Uh, We did find, and I know there's lots of examples of this, churches that were very different where there was vitality in spiritual life. And I got to attend a number of churches in London. We went to St. Helens at Bishopsgate. We went to Holy Trinity Brompton. uh, And we went to Christchurch Mayfair, all Anglican. Uh, My daughter goes to Christchurch Mayfair. And it's interesting, the buildings, not as spectacular. um, Very historical, though. Uh, St. Helens is where Shakespeare is buried. Uh, It's kind of an odd, quirky building, to be honest. Um, Columns all the way through the middle that they've got to kind of take into account when they put the seats out but overflowing with people. Uh, My daughter's church is very ugly, literally on the outside, weathered uh, at Mayfair, but you go inside and there's just this throng of young workers there, uh, warm fellowship and vitality and singing and the word being preached. Uh, Holy Trinity Brompton Place was overflowing uh, again. Uh, It was wonderful to see. It was a very multi-ethnic congregation with uh, people from around the world, which is what London is, uh, worshipping. Uh, The Risen Christ Together, St. Helens Bishopsgate, uh, overflowing with university students and workers. And you thought, what is the difference? Uh, Because it's very stark Uh, and there's other churches where uh, there's great life and then you go to other places where it just feels like a deathly museum uh, and you wonder what's going on. And what we noted as we went there, and look, I know this, if I can say, in theory, but then you see it uh, with your own eyes, is that there's a great history of struggle that took place in Europe which we aren't aware of and didn't experience here in Australia in the same way. And the struggle was uh, the Reformation. And I want to give you two little things that I saw um, that depict this. Now, the first one here uh, is a plaque that is in St. Paul's Cathedral. And I'll just read it to you if you can't quite see the words. It says, "...the Bishop of London preaches at Paul's cross against Tyndale's English New Testament, which is later burnt." I've got a plaque up to commemorate that. Um, Well, I guess it was part of church history. And what you see there was that there was a great struggle that took place, and it's a struggle to do with authority. I'm going to come and speak about that later, but um, Tyndale was one of the great men of the Reformation. And his great vision was that everyone down to the plowman would have the Word of God in their own language, in their own hands, to read for themselves. And then you go to the cathedral and read, yes, the bishop was so impressed, he preached against it and then burnt the Bible. I'll show you another uh, piece of struggle that took place. Now, that's a spot that is marked in stone with a cross in Oxford in Broad Street. Who's been here to Oxford? A few people. Uh, Wonderful town. I could go back there and just incredible place just to walk around and see. It's where C.S. Lewis... uh, developed his writings for the Narnia Chronicles. We saw what they think is the lamppost from the Narnia Chronicles. But as you go through, right near where you pick up the walking tours, there's this cross in the road there. You can see the bicycles behind and That's Balliol College. Uh, That cross marks the spot where three of the great English reformers were burnt at the stake. And I'll read you uh, the plaque that is on the wall opposite, about 10 metres away on the wall of uh, Balliol College. Opposite this point, near the cross in the middle of Broad Street, Hugh Latimer, one-time Bishop of Worcester, Nicholas Ridley, Bishop of London, and Thomas Cramner, Archbishop of Canterbury, were burnt for their faith in 1555 and 1556. In other words, a local bishop, the Bishop of London, the major city, and actually the Bishop for the country were all burnt here for their faith. And you stop and just ponder, why was this? What was this great struggle? Now, I just want to take you through. Because those issues that they struggled on back 400 years ago, 450 years ago, are really very similar to the issues we face today in church life. The issues have not gone away. And we need to understand from history and learn from history so we don't make the same mistakes today. And what took place in the Reformation was literally a reformation of the church and their understanding of God and how you approached him and how you got right with him and how you knew him. And there's a number of questions that, if I can say, will help us understand the issues that they grappled with. And the first issue is this... um, Who tells us reliably about God? I want to go through three questions that uh, were significant in the day of the Reformation. Who tells us reliably about God? And if you can think about that picture of the Bible and the plaque with it being burnt, this is the first issue. Where do you learn with authority about what God is saying? In the medieval church of the day, what they said was this. Look, the church is the one and only the church who has the insight and the spiritual capacity to properly divide the Word of God and to help you understand what it says. And so what it meant was the Word of God was here, but the church sat over it and said, this is what the Bible says. Now, because the Bible in the day was in Latin and most people didn't speak it, it was, if I can say, a closed book for the common man and woman. And that's why Tinder wanted to have the book opened and put into the language of the people. And that was the great struggle, the first great struggle that took place. And Tyndale was at the forefront of that, of wanting to help people access these words so that they could understand it themselves. And it was built on a belief that, no, the word is not something that you've got to have a theological degree and speak Latin to be able to interpret, the common plowman and his wife who work in the fields can still read this. And if you like fancy words, it's called the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. Now that just simply means Scripture is clear. You can read it yourself, you don't need me. You can read it and get meaning from it and God's going to speak to you. Now, in the Reformation, what happened was um, Luther is kind of at the forefront of the whole Reformation movement. He's kind of the first key figure. And he stood up, and I won't go through the history of Luther, but he effectively said, look, when I read the Bible, there's a whole range of things that we've gotten wrong as a church. And he was kind of speaking from within. And he thought he was being helpful, if I can say, with a smile on his face. And he nailed to the door at Wittenberg in Germany, where he was working from and ministering from, 95 areas where the church had got it wrong. And he's kind of fired up at this stage. And they're called the 95 Theses. Now, it didn't go down well with the hierarchy because, you see, they're going, no, you can't say these things. it's th- That's wrong. And I want you to hear what Luther says when he's on trial to be a heretic. And they trialed him for being a heretic and they condemned him as a heretic. And it's only because of some German princes who basically kidnapped him and heisted him away to a private castle that he survived. This is what he said... Um, at his um, trial. Unless I can be instructed and convinced with evidence from the Holy Scriptures or with open and clear and distinct grounds and reasoning and my conscience is captive to the Word of God, then I cannot and will not recant because it's neither safe nor wise to act against conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. And so what he said was, look, unless the Word of God instructs me or my conscience speaks to me which is captive to this word then I can't do anything else it doesn't matter what you say even if you kill me here I stand I can do no other now he survived because some German princes kidnapped him when they took him off to Rome to be killed and you see this is the struggle the church has had through history what will be its authority? How can you definitively, authoritatively know what God is saying? Well, the Reformation said it is through Scripture. And we had a reading from Titus today. And if I would encourage you to go home and read Titus. Read 1 Timothy, read 2 Timothy. And just reflect on what is said there. Because they're letters that are written from the Apostle Paul to young leaders who are going out to run churches. Titus was written to Titus, who's running the church in Crete. And all through there, you'll see things like this. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. And the letter is this long instruction to Titus about what he's to do. Central to it is that they must have the word of God alive and being taught so that sound doctrine is taught. Because what Paul wanted to have happen was that the word of God had to be taught as central to the life of the church so that they could hear God speak. Uh, You listen to what he says to Timothy, and this is from 2 Timothy. All scripture, Timothy, is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. And so the Reformation, what it said was there were four key things, and they were all prefixed by the word sola. I haven't put in the Latin word that follows, I've given you the English translation. But one of the first things they said is sola scripture, scripture, in other words, we know God through the Bible alone. That's our authority to know God. That's the first thing. And if you're here today as a new person, I would encourage you, pick up the Bible and start reading it for yourself and God will speak to you. And I'd encourage you, to start at the Gospels. It's kind of not like most books. I wouldn't encourage you to start at the beginning. Start in the middle because that's the centrepiece of the story. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Start there and start reading. It's actually how I was converted. Uh, I didn't have any minister tell me what to believe. I literally picked up the Bible and started reading it for myself. And I read the Gospel five times and discovered the wonder of who Jesus was. Well, the second question is this. How do you get right with God? Now, it is worth acknowledging it's not a question modern people are typically asking today, though it's still a very, very important question we actually should ask. it: How do you get right with God? And historically, uh, the human heart has not changed. Deeply embedded in our psyche as human people is that we think we're better than we are when it comes to God. And we think somehow we can merit God's favour, be it through good works, be it through, if I can say, obeying certain things that we might think we should obey in terms of Ten Commandments. Uh, It's even been people thinking that they can pay God off and through their money they can kind of do things to get merit. And one of the classic examples of the contrast of this with what the Reformation proclaimed uh, was through two churches that we visited. And it was in Prague, which was uh, old Czechoslovakia, now Czech Republic. And it was very striking. We went to the first church, which is St. James. And it's an incredibly beautiful building, as most of these churches are. A very famous place uh, in Prague. And I want you to have a look at the architecture on the left. At the back, uh, you see what they would call the altar, though I don't think it is an altar. Uh, It's the table they celebrate the communion on. But on the side there, you can see these private booths. And literally, the rich people could buy their place closer to what they thought was the altar. And use their money to get closer to God. Have a look at this church. It's about a mile away. Very contrasting in architectural style. It's the church where Johannes Huss preached from. Now, does anyone know who Johannes Huss is? Now, Dave Hambury should know. <laughs> He's one of the proto-reformers. Uh, Martin Luther is the great Reformation name, along with John Calvin. Huss came a 100 years before Luther, saying very similar things. He hadn't quite worked everything out that Luther worked out, but he was against the excesses of the church. Who uh, was against people thinking they could buy their way to God, and you see the contrast in understanding of how you relate to God in the simplicity of the building. There was just a pulpit, a very plain room where he would preach to the people and he would pray, and he had a very simple faith and trust in God. There was no sense that you could buy your way upstairs which is one of the things they spoke against, the indulgences of the medieval church. But we're no different. Um, I keep meeting people who say, look, I'll be right, I've lived a good life. I've gone to church. I got baptised. We even had a person who came here and um, they're not from the church and they wanted to have their child baptised. And we said, look, we run a course for people who are like that because we want you to understand the Christian faith because baptism is a symbol of a relationship that you have with God. And he didn't want to come to the church, he was offering us money. We go, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. You can't buy your way up, you can't earn your way up. You can only be saved through what God has done for us. And have a look at Titus chapter 3 if you've got your Bibles open. The passage that was read for us by Justin is one of the great descriptions of salvation in the Bible. Now, I could spend half an hour just talking about this passage on salvation, but I want you to know just a couple of things here in verses 5 to 8. It says, God, he saved us. Not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. It is not because of what we've done. It's because of God's mercy. He' saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He's poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God and he goes on to talk about, it, so that you'd live good lives. And note those two phrases. He saved us because of His mercy. It's not because of our merit. And who are those who are saved? They're those who have trusted in God. And two of the great statements of the Reformation that followed on sola scriptura were sola grace and sola faith. You see, it's through grace alone we're saved. We're actually not saved by our faith. We're saved by God's grace. We're saved by his mercy that he offers us forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we take hold of that grace... faith we simply receive him and his forgiveness into our life we receive the lord jesus and when that happens we are born again and the spirit of god is poured out on us that's what he's saying he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the holy spirit we are justified on the basis of his grace You can't add to what god's done you can't pay for it and you definitely don't deserve it you can simply accept it receive it and trust in him the third question of the reformation was this how do you approach god is it through a priest or is it through jesus christ alone now one of the striking things about visiting as an anglican minister over in england is observing the depth of the ritual at some of the churches And we saw that in different ways, and I'm not against liturgy. We have a more formal liturgical service here at 8 o'clock, which is very helpful for those who come along. But One day when I was in London, we went to the Borough Markets. Now, if you know Borough Markets, it's an incredible kind of place. It's kind of foodie heaven, is how I describe it. Uh, Every beautiful delicacy and every place you stop, you think, I want to spend some money and buy that. What's really good is they have little tasting plates, I just went around having the it. I did buy something but anyway, um, I kind of felt guilty at the end of the day. Um, Right next to it though was a cathedral and Kat saw it there and we're having lunch. We had like one of these pork pie sausage roll things and it was gorgeous and um, Kat said, let's go to the cathedral. So we went in there and lo and behold there was a school group who'd come into the cathedral now, why don't you answer the question if we invite a school group in here to St Matthew's and you got me to come and speak to them what do you think I'd speak on what would you want me to speak on now, I'll tell you what I would want to speak on I'd want to explain to the kids that there's a God in heaven who loves them and though we've blown it with him he forgives us and wants us to be his friends but it's only through what his son the Lord Jesus Christ has done on the cross that that's possible And what we need to do is trust and follow the Lord Jesus. Now, that would be kind of a good thing to tell them, wouldn't it? Well, that's not what happened. They were showing them how to dress up in ecclesiastical robes. And around the church, you could just see them getting lessons in how to dress up. And one poor kid was totally bored out of his brain, which I would have been too, quite frankly. And he's getting wrapped over the knuckles for being on his mobile phone. Now let me say, I feel this kind of quite deeply because I grew up as a chorister in a choir and we used to get paid and I know what it's like to wear the robes and the ruffles as a young kid and what it did to me personally in terms of not helping me understand the gospel. And I thought, what are they on about? I thought we're meant to be here teaching people about Jesus, not dressing up. And you see, when you think about special clothes that ministers wear and with the ritual what does it communicate to people I'll tell you what it communicates to me because I wear them occasionally it sets me apart from the people in a way that says I'm kind of special and closer to him and here's the reality I'm not it's why I don't like wearing robes. Now, On occasion I will for funerals out of respect for the person who has died, knowing that they would have wanted me to. And I've done it three times in my seven years here. But I am not closer to God than anyone here. I am not a priest. And you'll see some of the churches and that's the way they'll want to be treated. You now The priest, is he here? I am not a priest, I'm a minister which means I'm a servant of the gospel and my job is not to stand between you and God and pray on your behalf, it's to stand with you and point you to the one who does stand between us and God, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom all of us have equal access to. And you see, when you go through the New Testament it is all through the letters, the way Paul will talk about being in Christ, to Titus, my true son in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. And you see this is typical of the way Paul will write. Uh, in verses five to seven when he talks about salvation, he says, it's through Jesus Christ our Savior. He is our great high priest. And you see that was the fourth and great truth of the Reformation. That salvation is through Christ alone. And we approach God through him. It's the wonderful reality. Everyone has equal access to God through Christ. You don't need a theological degree. You don't need three letters at the front of your name, R-E-V. You just need enough faith to accept what Christ has done on your behalf, that he died in your place for your sins, and receive him as your Lord and Saviour. Friends, there was a great difference between churches. And when you boil it down, these four truths are at the centre of the debate, the centre of the struggle, and the centre of the divide. And we must never forget that. And it was wonderful to go to churches, slightly different in flavour and form. But what was alive was the gospel. That they believed that it's through the word of God alone, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and through Christ alone, that we find friendship and connection with the living God and when you find that the spirit of god is poured out and it's why my daughter's church i don't know there are a few hundred people but in the last nine years they've planted nine churches in london in dead buildings htb has planted numerous churches out of london st helens is planting numerous churches out of london all souls laying in place same thing story goes on where the gospel is alive there is spiritual life and friends it's the same for us here today And it's the same for us going forward. We must never forget these four truths. That it's through Scripture alone that we discover the living God. And it's by His grace alone, taken hold of through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we become living members of His church. Because the church, at the end of the day, it's not a building. It's not a hierarchy. It's not a liturgy it's not a ceremony it's a living body of people who know the Lord Jesus Christ and who in the power of the Spirit are serving and proclaiming him in the world let us pray father we just thank you for your word we thank you for your mercy and grace and we thank you for your son the Lord Jesus Christ who pours out his spirit upon us. May we in humility and in simple faith trust in him and receive him and walk with you every day that we live. I thank you for our forefathers who have gone before us, who fought the good fight to protect these faiths, these truths. May we never forget and may we hold on tightly to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you.